Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Aaron Woodruff, Director of the Domestic Policy Program at the McDonald laurie Institute, where he leads the Institute's work on economic and fiscal policy, competition policy, social policy, and the intersection of culture, politics, and public policy. He's recently co-authored a fascinating new paper entitled Northern Awokening, How Social Justice and Woke Language Have Infiltrated Canadian news media, which empirically captures the growing use of social justice ideas and language in Canadian journalism. I'm grateful to speak with him about the paper's findings and its implications for Canadian culture and politics. Aaron, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the paper. Thanks so much for having me, Sean. It's an honor to be here. Let's start with a basic question. Why did you pursue this research? What was the impetus to see if the ideas and language of social justice or wokeism or whatever one calls it was increasingly finding expression in Canadian journalism? I think the short answer is there's a saying about how if something's important, you should try and measure it. And I think the there's a sort of a widespread feeling, and not just in Canada, but in other places, that something has been different about the news media in recent years. And, um, you know, it was hard to debate this without actually trying to quantify it. And I reached out to my co-author, a fellow by the name of David Rosado, who's based in New Zealand, and he'd already done um, some quantitative work in this area, looking at U.S. media and the U.K. media, and I'm sure we can talk about that a bit later, about the differences between what he found there and what he found in Canada. But I reached out to him to see if he would be interested in doing something similar here in Canada, and he was. Um, and so really what this was was an attempt to measure something, to quantify something that up until now really had just been a sort of vague feeling for a lot of people. Yeah, that's a great segue, Aaron. My next question about your methodology, you selected 14 news outlets over the period from 2000 to 2021 to carry out the analysis. You then essentially tested the prevalence of what you describe as, quote, prejudice signifying terms in these outlets over the period. Let me ask a two-part question. First, how did you select the outlets and the time frame? And second, Why don't you help our listeners understand what you mean by prejudice signifying terms and what were some of the words and language that you were searching for? Sure. So, I mean, on the first part, um, we we picked a time period of about 20 years. The primary way that we gathered the data was by scraping the websites of these major news organizations. And we picked, you know, the most well-known major media outlets. So Globe and Mail, National Post, Toronto Star, CBC, French language outlets like La Presse, Journal de Montréal. Um, so really just the sort of biggest uh, outlets was our sort of criteria. Um, and we we gathered all the data for all the news stories going back about 20 years. So it was uh, an attempt to get a, a longitudinal view, to, to the best way to 
test whether things have changed over time. With respect to the language, when we say uh, sort of a social justice signifying language, you know, words that involve um, uh, racism, things like sexism, uh, distinct forms of prejudice. These are all terms we're pretty familiar with in the, in the day to day. And again, uh, you know, the reason for wanting to do this study was a lot of people feel that there has been a, a change in the in the emphasis of news or the use of these terms. And so we wanted to see, is it in fact true, are news outlets using these types of words a lot more now than they were, say, 10 or 15 years ago. That's what we wanted to embark on. Uh, it leads to the obvious question. Uh, what did you find in overall terms? We found that there is a definite uh, trend and there's been a definite spike uh, over the last, I would say, uh, just less than 10 years now um, in the use of this language of, across all different types of, uh, you know, prejudicial or sort of prejudice signifying language. So it is a real thing. That's the uh, that's the first point I would make is and this is similar to what we've seen in other countries as well. Um, you know, depending on the type of prejudice, it has uh, it has increased to a greater or lesser degree. But the focus on these issues on things like sexism, racism, homophobia, transphobia, um, Islamophobia, anti-Semitism. These are these, you know, people are not imagining it. There has actually been an increase in the use of these terms uh, in the news. Yeah, let me take up a specific example. The most significant increase in prevalence in the ideas and language that you studied is what you characterize as gender identity prejudice, which saw an increase of 2,285% between 2010 and 2021 alone. Do you want to unpack that a bit? What did you find and, and what do you think is behind it? Yeah, I think this is a particularly interesting one. I mean, obviously, as you said, it's the one that was the most dramatic rise. I think that might be partly explained by the fact it was starting from such a, a low base level. I mean, the, the idea of gender identity, even as a sort of uh, area for public discussion, is relatively new, right? If you go back 20, 25 years, I don't think a lot of people even uh, realized that this was uh, this was, a, was was something that was out there. It's now entered sort of mainstream conversation. So I think that's part of the explanation. The other is that it's probably of all the different types of isms we could talk about, it might be that one of the most contentious. People have very strong feelings about it on either side. Uh, some people take the view that even discussing the topic itself is prejudicial. Um, so it, uh, I think that probably explains um, the, the fact that it is is even more controversial in a basket of things that are all controversial. It is the most controversial. Um, that probably explains why uh, the, the language is, it, it increased as much as it has. Another key finding, Aaron, is that the prevalence of prejudice signifying terms was roughly equal among news outlets characterized as being left-leaning and right-leaning, which is different than in the United States and the United Kingdom, where the prevalence was far greater in left-leaning publications. What does that tell us? Is there no such thing as right-wing media in Canada? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of ways to look at this. One one theory I have is that uh, the reason for this is that the the spectrum of the news media in Canada is just narrower overall than the U.S. So in the U.S., you just have a, a the, the the span of left to right. If we look at it that way, is is wider and longer than in Canada. In Canada, you have outlets that and I think most people or you know regular consumers of news media would agree there are some outlets that lean left or lean right, but uh, whatever we might think about how far left and how far right they are in Canada, the gap is just not as big as as it is in the United States. So that, I think the media ecosystem here is just not as uh, wide as it is in the U.S. Um, the other thing is, and this is a limitation of the study, is uh, you know we don't know exactly when when media use these terms. 
we don't know if they're using them to dismiss them, right? For all we know, when, uh, you know, uh, if, if the National Post versus the Toronto Star uses the term transphobic, maybe the Toronto Star is using it to say in a story that they think transphobia is happen- happening, whereas in the Post, uh, which leans right, they might be sort of dismissing it as, as some. So, you know, only testing on the uh, frequency of the appearance of the words doesn't always give us the context around them. So that is one limitation here that, that we have to explore further. Uh, that's a good observation, Aaron. It's just worth emphasizing for listeners and viewers that that's partly a, a consequence of nearly 6 million different instances that you cover, right, in the study. So that level of more qualitative analysis would have represented a pretty major undertaking given the, the scope and ambition of your quantitative work. I mentioned this is an example where you found difference between the Canadian experience and similar research in the United States and the United Kingdom. If you want to take up that point further, how else does your, do your findings compare to this research elsewhere across the Anglo-American world? Yeah, there. Um, I mean, it is broadly similar. I don't want to overstate the difference. Uh, and a lot of time it's contemporaneous. So the idea that this was happening, you know, well before in America, we were simply following, um, you know, you might be able to make that case, but it is it is sort of moving in parallel. A couple of things that really stood out. One was on the relative frequency of uh, mentions of Islamophobia versus anti-Semitism. That was one that really leapt out for us. They're polar opposites in Canada and the United States. In Canada, um, the focus on Islamophobia was was is quite high versus anti-Semitism, which is low. Whereas in the United States, it's the opposite. Anti-Semitism tends to appear a lot more than Islamophobia. You know, theorizing as to why that is uh, again is very interesting. We, we don't answer the question in the paper. Um, does it have to do with the relative with the readership? Does it have to do with the different views of the journalists in in Canada, the United States? Um, you know, is it demographic weight of those constituencies of Muslims and Jews in Canada, the United States? I don't know, but there is a very distinct uh, difference in the trend between Canada and the United States on those two. Another interesting finding for me is that there's some evidence that these ideas and language may have peaked in the past few years. It reminds me of Tyler Cowen's recent observation that we may have reached, quote, peak wokeism as the general population begins to push back against some of its excesses. Does that argument resonate with you, Aaron? Is there a reason to think that your research may validate Cohen's thesis, at least as far as Canada goes? Yeah, I mean, if you look at most of the measures for most of the language, the peak um, in terms of frequency of appearance happened a couple of years ago. It has come down a little bit. I should say the sort of leveling off that we're, we're seeing on, on, on most of these measures, we're, we're coming down, we're resting at a much higher level than where we started. So we went way up, we've come down a little bit, but the sort of uh, uh, resting rate, if you will, is still highly elevated from sort of going back 10 or 15 years. So I don't want to overstate the case. The other is that, um, you know, if we, uh, this term about peak woke has been thrown around in a lot of different contexts lately. If that's true in media, um, it, it, you know, our theory as to why this started in the first place, if, for example, one of the catalysts for this was um, the rise of wokeness in university campuses and that media follows after, um, unless it is also leveling off on campuses, then this sort of uh, catalyst for the for future spikes in wokeness would still be there. So if you view the, I know that the term is overused and some people are you know annoyed with the use of woke at all, um, but I use it just as shorthand. You know, it, it, wokeness has more than one sort of fountainhead. And, uh, you know, media is only one of them. Um, it does appear from the data that it is not increasing further right now in media. 
So I do think, yeah, if you're looking strictly at media, you can argue we have we have passed peak woke and we are now sort of uh, down a little bit at a resting rate much higher than where we were when we started. That leads to the question about what's behind these trends. The paper contemplates six explanations for the rise of these ideas and, and language in the news media. Do you want to talk a bit about that, Aaron? Which ones do you think are the most persuasive? Yeah, I mean, we, the, so just so people know, I mean, the theories that we have is, you know, one is that we're just mirroring trends in the United States. Um, a second one is that, you know, these are just reflecting changes in society. Society's become more prejudiced. And so we are just, you know, the news is just reflecting, they're holding up a mirror to the public. Um, you know, the, the third is that even if uh, prejudice hasn't increased, um, our, our institutions and public awareness are more sensitive to these things. So we're giving them more airtime, even though they haven't really changed uh, much in terms of uh, frequency um, in, in society. Um, you know, another theory is that uh, the journalists themselves have changed. Journalists are more ideological themselves. They care more about these issues. Um, you know, and similar to that, you know, is this a, is this a question of broader political changes? So journalists being influenced by just a broader political culture change. And then the last being financial incentives, right? Uh, you know, everyone knows that the, the media, uh, media's um, uh, money-making model is broken when advertising migrated to the internet, sort of threw everything into flux. And so now it's about chasing eyeballs. And we all know that old story, that old uh, chestnut about how if it bleeds, it leads. Controversial news, angry news tends to generate more eyeballs. And so, uh, you know, finding issues where people are going to get angry or worked up or upset, um, it's just good. It's now good for business. And so there's a very strong financial incentive to do that. In terms of what I think, I mean, I think it's I, I'm skeptical of the idea that society's become more prejudiced. Um, I'm certainly not saying we live in a prejudice-free society, but I think if anything, things have been improving. And most most you know surveys of people's attitudes tend to suggest people are getting less prejudiced overall rather than more. Um, so I'm I'm wary of that. Um, you know, I do think there's something to the change in who are journalists. I'm not sure it's entirely ideological as it is as a matter of of class. And I know that you had other guests that have talked about this issue. Um, you know, journalism used to be a much more diverse profession. And now it's uh, in, in terms of uh, educational background. Now it's a highly professionalized profession. And I think that, you know, reflects the priorities of the people. Their lived experience is simply not one of where they've had to worry about, for example, a lot of blue collar issues. Uh, so I think that's reflected in news coverage. And and it allows these people to be more attuned to uh, concerns like like racism, um, whereas before it might have the focus might have been more heavily towards things like uh, you know uh, getting a job or or, or a building family. Um, so you know I I tend to think the financial incentives though are are probably one of the strongest factors here. It is a dogfight out there in the media landscape. Um, you know, legacy media are are slowly shriveling up. And people are trying to hang on for dear life. And anything you can do to get eyeballs um, will help you there. And, you know, stoking, uh, stoking concern, stoking anger, uh, telling people that there's this huge outrageous problem that they need to pay attention to or do something about um, is probably good for attracting eyeballs. So, I, I, you know, my, my view, without having explored it uh, in depth yet, that's sort of my instinct as to, as to the answer. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was 
dive into the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Yeah, that's a, a comprehensive answer, Aaron. And just your final point resonates with me, particularly if we go back to your earlier comments about the extent to which these trends seem to manifest themselves both in left-leaning and, and right-leaning publications. The one commonality they both have is they're trying to make a go of it as a for-profit business in a pretty tough environment. And so leaning into so-called culture war issues may not necessarily be good for social cohesion or public discourse, but it may be a crucial ingredient to generating revenues in a pretty difficult environment. Let me take up a couple of your observations, though. As you mentioned, we've previously spoken to Batiacha Ungar Sargon, the American journalist whose book, Woke Media, makes a couple of big arguments along the lines you described. First, that modern journalists are, as you say, more professionalized, more homogeneously left-wing, and in turn, less committed to viewpoint neutrality than in the past. Second, that the end of traditional advertising has pushed the media into a subscriber-driven model, which preferences content that is less about information and more about being responsive to the preferences of one's subscribers, that the combination of these two forces seem to be pushing outlets increasingly in the direction of this type of thinking and ideas and language. What do you think about that argument? And what do you think its relevance is for the Canadian market? I think it's a powerful argument. And it makes perfect sense when people think about it. I mean, it's easy to argue, you know, a lot of people point out that it's not healthy to consume only things you agree with, right? But the reality is when given the choice, the revealed preference is people only want to read things they agree with. They don't want to read, like they don't want to be confronted with pushback on to their, to their pre-existing views. And, uh, you know, in, a, in an environment where media's uh, revenue model is not premised on, you know, you know, worrying about where you're going to get your eyeballs, right? In the newspaper era before the internet, you got all your revenue from the classified section. So you could sort of publish whatever you want. You could publish um, whether it's whether it's your straight news, which still often has a, at least a slight editorial slant, or your opinion pieces, you don't have to worry about losing your readership, you know, because they have nowhere else to go. Uh, so, so, but now they don't derive their. So, so if I could just interrupt for a second, Aaron, only to reinforce the point, not just that you had a captive audience, but actually the incentive was to build as broad an audience as possible, of course, because for the advertisers. And so in, in the absence of that incentive to have as broad an audience as possible, it seems like media outlets are doing precisely the opposite. They're going deep into smaller more galvanized audiences than in the past. Sorry. No, that, that's a very key point. And, it, and it's, um, you know, it, it's logical for them. And I think a lot of uh, a lot of folks inside these these sort of shriveling empires would acknowledge that they're in a dogfight for eyeballs and they don't really have much choice. They probably recognize the problem as well, but there's not much they can do about it now. Um, and even when you look at a subscriber model, um, you know, it, the, the still, same is still true. I mean, people are not going to voluntarily pay money for content that makes them that they don't like or that they find offensive or, or, or that, you know, it runs counter to their views. So it is it is a real challenge because I think a lot of um, outlets have come um, out of the gates hoping to they recognize the importance of the principle 
uh, of, of being balanced, but they find that it's it's hard, it's just hard to attract people. And then you know, um, so so I think that is a that is a real struggle for a lot of media. I don't think anyone has landed on a a, a real solution to it. I, I would say that um, you know maybe the reality is the in the in the media landscape of the future, there's just less media. Um, you know, people point out about the decline of uh, media's capacity to do certain things. But we should also remember that some things we don't need media to do anymore. So if you look at, you know, reporting on certain things, there's, I mean, governments put a lot of information on the Internet if you want to go find it. If you want to read, um, you know, if you want to read every word spoken in the House of Commons through Hansard, you can go on a website and read all of that if you want. So you can still have access to that information that you used to only be able to get through a newspaper. And so I think newspapers and journalism's value add is going to gonna be at uh, finding things and maybe distilling information, um, sifting through information for people. Because in terms of mass quantities of information, there's never been more of it at our fingertips than there is now. And so I don't think journalism's job needs to be to to just share all information, which people can get, frankly, without a media outlet, but to, to find a value add to, um, you know, distill things down for people who are busy, and don't have the time to go hunting for this stuff. We've been talking about the interaction and relationship between news media outlets and their core readers or core subscribers. But I want to talk about the relationship between the news media and the broader population. Talk, Aaron, about the two-way conversation between the news media and the public on these issues. Do you think the media is leading the public or responding to it? Yeah, I mean, I guess the best way to measure that is whether the public, I mean, you could ask the public, do you think that the media is is reflecting your concerns and views? And the news isn't good for media there, right? I think um, a media that is representative and re- responsive to the public and the, and the things that the public cares about um, is going to have a high level of trust. It's when there's a disconnect that you're going to see a deterioration in the level of trust. And we've seen that here, as we've seen elsewhere. So, you know, and you take an you take an entity like the CBC, for example, which uh, I know is, has been Elon Musk has decided that they need the uh, government funded tag. And, and CBC can be very divisive to people. Um, you know, some people love the CBC. Some people hate the CBC. Um, but I think the reason uh, that some people uh, it's not that they hate the CBC. It's that they feel the CBC doesn't talk about the things that matter to them anymore. And I, I'm in that camp. I, I've dealt with a lot of CBC journalists over my career, Sean. They've almost, to a man and woman, been decent people. I haven't found them overly ideological or problematic. But, so, you know, I, I stopped watching CBC News on TV a long time ago because I found that a lot of the stories that were on there were just not things that mattered to anybody that I knew. And um, I think that that's rough. So I think that the, the problem is that the media is trying to lead on these things. The media, in a lot of cases now, rather than saying what matters to people, uh, and we'll do a story on that, it's um, it's people who are well-intentioned and mean well and saying, you know what, these issues are important, so we're going to platform these issues to try and convince the public that these are important things that they should care about and that they should follow. And the public's not buying it, and that's resulting them in saying, you know, I, I, I read these um, these media outlets or watch this this TV news or open up this newspaper and I see stories about things that um, I don't care about or seem niche. And I don't see stories about things that matter a lot to me. I think that's that's behind a lot of the uh, the loss of trust. Yeah, it seems to me there's an analogy, Aaron, between a political party's relationship to its core base voters and its relationship to the wider public that it's trying to ultimately persuade. I think it's generally accepted that a political party that is too responsive to its base voters risks building 
something of a disconnect to the broader population. And it seems to me the same principle applies to the news media. And that partly is manifests itself in what you're talking about, a sense that the media is having a conversation with its subscribers and increasingly the general public is not part of that conversation. An entity that is increasingly part of the conversation, though, when it comes to the Canadian media is the government. The media is increasingly dependent on government for financial support. How do you think that interacts with the developments we've been talking about? Well, if we come back to incentives again, right, in the same way that, um, you know, a media that's chasing certain eyeballs is going to want to be attuned to what the people who have those eyeballs care about or, or want to read or, or consume, um, you know, a, any media outlet that's dependent on government is obviously going to take into consideration, you know, what, what the government wants. And that's not, I mean, it's, that's not always as blatant as, you know, pulling punches on the government or not criticizing the government. I think that happens sometimes. So that's not the only risk. It's it's also about a general orientation. I mean, if you have to take the current government we have in Ottawa, if this is a government that, for example, champions uh, champions climate change as as the issue of all issues, I think that a news outlet that wants to be seen in a good light by the government is going to ensure that they devote a disproportionate amount of resources to that issue, um, you know, whether or not that's something that the public at large is equally as interested in. So I, you know, again, I don't think um, I don't want to accuse journalists of always, you know, deliberately going out of their way to suck up to government. I don't think it's like that. And I frankly think a lot of journalists um, are, are stuck between a rock and a hard place because, they are not personally influenced, but but their employers, they're, you know, the people making decisions higher up the food chain know that they depend on government for survival. And so we're going to be very reluctant to um, to talk about things. I mean, I just give you one sort of loose example without naming too many outlets. At MLI, we've certainly published a lot of stuff critical of, of, of bills like the Online News Act, which would uh, basically shake down big text to subsidize. Um, newspapers and, and other media outlets, um, we have a hard time getting those op-eds and pieces published in certain major outlets. And, you know, you don't have to guess why that is. Yeah, it's a good point. As you say, too often, I think the conversation trends towards blatant examples of media bias vis-a-vis -vis the government, when the truth is the risks are in some ways more subtle and insidious. It's a context in which the business model starts to bleed into the newsroom. And in so doing, as you say, puts a lot of journalists and their commitment to journalistic principles at some risk. Before we wrap up, Aaron, you've mentioned in a couple of cases work that you'd like to explore further based on this initial foundational paper. Do you want to talk a bit about some of the possible lines of inquiry that would flow naturally from this work? Yeah, I mean, one would be to do a, a more detailed survey of the sort of political proclivities of journalists. I mean, are, are journalists um, more left-leaning than they were 20 years ago? Um, I, you know, a lot of people would instinctively say probably overall, yes, but uh, we, you know, that hasn't been measured. Um, and, um, you know, that's, that's sort of the big one. I also think maybe you could do an analysis of the, depending on, you know, different outlets have different, um, business models. So you could try and look to see, is there a correlation between the temptation to use this language, like the outlets that rely on eyeballs versus the subscriber model, which versus, you know, di these different models are, is there a trend? Is there a, a tendency for outlets to lean on this language or sort of stoke, uh, stoke anger or upsetness because, because of the type of model they have? So 
there's all kinds of, uh, you know, we really just wanted to sort of put this out there as the sort of beginning of a conversation to quantify something. And then certainly ourselves and we invite others to build on that and sort of uh, look at what the, the explanation is to, to the numbers that we found. Well, you and the team deserve tremendous credit for, as you say, starting that conversation. I would just say in parentheses for listeners and viewers interested in the subject of measuring the political preferences of individuals within large institutions, that MLI has done that kind of work before concerning faculty members on university campuses. So this is a kind of line of analysis that you've pursued before and maybe in the future uh, will be in a position to pursue when it comes to the news media. In the meantime, there's more than enough for readers to mull over in this first study entitled Northern Awakening, How Social Justice and Woke Language Have Infiltrated Canadian News Media. Aaron Woodrook, Director of the Domestic Policy Program at the McDonald laurie Institute, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thanks for having me, Sean. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. You can access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada or go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening. <laughs>